Hey, good morning, crowd family. Happy, happy Sunday. So glad you can join us today. If you have your Bibles, tune to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 2 through 16. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses uh, 2 uh, through 16. We're now in part 21 of our, of our series, Undivided. And as always, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, uh, chapter 10, verses 14 through 33. And in verse 14, Paul again exhorts the Corinthians to flee from idolatry, to, to avoid it. Because back in verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them, speaking of the Israelites, were. So there was always the danger that the Corinthian Christians, convinced that an idol was nothing, might fall back under the influence of paganism. Therefore, the only wise course was to have nothing absolutely nothing to do with it. And Paul is specifically referring uh, to the idolatry at the pagan temples. In verses 16 uh, through 17, Paul uses the illustration of a communion service uh, to demonstrate that one who is a believer is one who has fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ. And then in verses 19 uh, through 20, Paul contrasts eating at the Lord's table with eating meals in the pagan temples. And Paul shows uh, how this dynamic applies to the temple feast in Corinth. And you see, Paul is concerned that if a believer is publicly participating in, in pagan feasts, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, they might open up a door, listen now, open up a door in their hearts for Satan to work because demons, remember I said this last week, demons are the spiritual force behind idolatry. Now, Paul's not saying that, that a believer uh, can be possessed by demons. However, friends, we can be oppressed by demons if we allow doors to remain open to their influence in our lives. Verse 21, uh, you cannot drink. So he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of of demons. In other words, Paul's saying it's impossible to have fellowship with God and fellowship with demons at the same time. You can't have it both ways. You can't. can't have it both ways. And then Paul tells us what believers can do, what they can do. Verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Not everything is edifying. And then he tells us what believers should do, should do. Verse 24, nobody should seek his own but the good of others, that we should seek the good of others. He's basically repeating uh, what he already wrote in chapter 6, uh, the importance of that, that overriding concern of not doing anything that will cause someone to stumble in their spiritual walk. And then Paul says in verses 25 through 30, follow me now, if any unbeliever, he says, if any unbeliever sets a good cut of meat before you, just, just eat it. He says, don't ask any questions, okay? Just eat eat it and don't ask where the meat came from. And then verse 28, he says, but if anyone, but if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake, verse 29, the other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. And then what Paul's like, you know, Paul's like, why should I not enjoy food for which I gave thanks? And why should my liberty be restricted because of another person's weak conscience. Well, he answers his own question in verse 31, and this is the ultimate goal, right? The ultimate goal where he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. The glory of God. 
that God's glory should be, listen now, our single aim, ambition, our desire, goal, our single aspiration. The spotlight is to shine on God, not on us. And the rule of freedom, as Paul's saying, the rule of freedom is whatever you do, do it with the motivation of glorifying God, glorifying God, okay? If exercising your Christian liberties glorifies God, then do it. Go for it. But if it doesn't, then don't do it. Verses 32 and 33, Paul says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Verse 33, Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own, I love that, my own good, but the good of many, so that what? So that they may be saved. And then we close the the message last week. Uh, We went into chapter 11, and we looked at verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. And Paul says, after all he said, because this ties the text together, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so he calls the Corinthian believers, he calls all believers to follow, to imitate him as he followed Christ. Paul abandoned his rights. He made unbelievable sacrifices because he loved Christ. He loved his brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul also loved the lost. Therefore, anything that would offend or cause another to stumble, Paul would joyfully, willingly, and voluntarily set aside to reach a soul for Jesus Christ. Gosh, I love that. This now brings us to today's text. The title of my message or the message today is Headship. Say that, Headship. Headship. Now here we begin a new section, chapters 11 through 14, chapters 14, uh, one in which Paul addresses specific problems of worship in the church. And I got to tell you, today's today's text is not an easy text to preach. It's not an easy text to interpret. Now, in order to interpret the text correctly, uh, there are two things we need to keep in mind, two things that you and I need to keep in mind as we interpret this text, because the specific problem, specific problem that Paul was seeking to solve should determine how we interpret what the text says. So the first thing that you and I need to keep in mind is there was at that time in the Corinthian culture, at that time in the Corinthian culture, a growing and aggressively destructive feminist movement. And the Corinthian believers were becoming influenced by this cultural movement. The second thing that you and I need to keep in mind is there needs to be, and you got to get this now, there needs to be a distinction, get it now, a distinction made between timeless theological principles, timeless theological principles, and time-bound cultural practices. Time-bound cultural practices. Practices. I'm going to say it again. There needs to be a distinction made between timeless theological principles and time-bound cultural practices. Okay. For example, the wearing of, of head covering, as we'll see that in the text, meant something specific in that time, in that culture, that it does not mean today. Just as short hair on a woman or long hair on a man meant something different at different times of history. So follow me here. We need to draw out the timeless principles that are being taught to us through Paul's instructions concerning the time-bound cultural practices to which the Corinthians were obligated. 
Now, now before we get into the outline, let's look at verse 2 first. Look at verse 2. And Paul writes, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teaching. The Bible, your Bibles might say ordinances, but in the Greek, it's the word paradosis, which is traditions. Traditions. He says, so I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teaching slash ordinances slash traditions. That should be the word there, traditions, just as I pass them on to you. So, so what Paul does, Paul thinks of something nice to say to them first, and he's praising them for remembering him in everything, right? And, and keeping up the traditions that Paul had handed to them. Now, I know that some Christians don't like the word tradition. I get it. Tradition is a loaded word uh, since it has both a very positive and negative connotation. Now, traditions can be good, but they also can be bad. A tradition, a tradition handed down, passed on, may be bad, as in Matthew chapter 15. Write that down, Matthew chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Matthew 15, uh, 2 and 3. And there the Pharisees were questioning Jesus. They said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And then Jesus says this, and why do you break, here we go, the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Did you get that? Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Also, a tradition handed or passed on may be contrary to the will of God, as in Mark chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Write that down. Mark chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Jesus said this, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the to the tradition, excuse me, to the tradition of men, you nicely set aside the commandment of God. Did you get that? You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition, your tradition. In the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You see, God hates the tradition of men when it violates his word. I'm going to say it again. God hates the tradition of men when it violates his word. So, so here in the text, the tradition Paul had handed down to the churches wasn't stuff that he made up. Rather, friends, it was from God himself. Paul handed to them the pure word of God, basic teachings, right, and doctrine, undefiled by opinions, undefiled by interpretations. So, so Paul praises them, right? So Paul praises them for holding to the traditions of truth. And though we know that that wasn't always the case because this is why Paul wrote this letter. It was to correct them. Remember, 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter. So they didn't always hold on to the traditions of truth. Uh, three points from, to, uh, from today in text today. If you're ready, say yes. And point number one is this, is headship. It's the same as the title of our message, headship. Write that down, headship. Point number one is headship. So what Paul does, Paul compliments them, but he's setting them up, setting them up for a for a correction he wants to give to them. So let's look at verse 3. Stay with me now, verse 3. 
Paul says now. The King James says but. Okay, but. All that really matters is what comes after the but, right? So he says now, or as King James says, but I want you to realize, now listen to what he says, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So what Paul does here, Paul begins by laying the theological groundwork. And he makes it clear that there is a, a definite order of, of headship. He, he wants them to understand the lines of authority in relationships that God established. So I want you to follow me here, okay? The usage of the word head, say head, head, denotes leadership and authority. It denotes leadership and authority, not dictatorship and superiority. I'm going to say it again. The word head here in the text denotes leadership and authority, not dictatorship and superiority. God has established this now, principles of order, right? Of uh, principles of leadership and authority. It's his divine design, uh, the perfect pattern for orderliness. And here, Paul describes three headship uh, relationships. So let's go back to the text. The head, he says, the head of every man is Christ. The head of every man is Christ. Every man is under the authority of Christ. He's our authority. And what Paul's saying, Paul says, hey, I want you, listen, listen, I want you to be under Christ's authority. That as men, friends, we would trust in Christ, look to Christ, walk with Christ consistently. We are submitting, say that, submitting. There's a submission. We are submitting to Christ. Whatever he says, the way he lives, that's how we are going to live. We are in submission to him. Got it? Then he says, and the head of the woman is what? Is man. Is man. That the wife would submit to her husband. He's the head. He's the leader. He's the authority. As he submits to Christ, he's the head, the leader of the wife. Now, this doesn't mean that the man is better, smarter, or wiser than the woman. In the eyes of God, men and women are equal. Say that, equal, but different in function. Got it? Different in function. Equal, but different roles. So he, the man, is to lead. He's the head. He's the head. He is to lead and she, the woman, is to submit to his leadership. Okay, his leadership, submit to his leadership. And hopefully he's leading in a godly manner, right? Colossians 3.18 says this. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, I know that the word submit has a bad connotation in today's culture, right? But let me tell you, first of all, what submit, what it doesn't mean, okay? What submission doesn't mean. Submission does not imply inferiority. It does not imply inferiority. As I said, men and women are equal, different in function, but they're equal. Also, submission is not absolute. Submission is not absolute. Ladies, listen now, there are limits to your submission. You don't submit to sin. You don't submit to abuse. Got it? Also, submission does not give the husband the right to exercise his leadership in an authoritative, overbearing manner. He's not to exercise power. Rather, he's to exercise responsibility, exercise godly leadership. 
Also, submission is not silence. Ladies, you have a voice. You have an opinion. And also, submission does not mean submission to men in general. You are to submit. God says you are to submit to your husband. Not every husband, not every man. Now, let me tell you what the word submit means in the biblical sense because it's a beautiful word. The word submit in the Greek is the word hupotasso. You've heard me say this many times in my sermons, hupotasso. It means to get under, it means to arrange yourself under someone. It's a military term describing the lining up of soldiers under, under the commanding officer. It has nothing to do with someone being smarter, better, wiser, or more talented. It simply means different in function. You got to get that. Different in function, different roles. Now, I want to say this. Just because a woman is not the head, just because she is different in function, listen now, doesn't mean that she cannot lead in a certain role or lead in, lead in a certain function. We see women in leadership all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see Miriam as a prophet. And we see Deborah function as a judge in Israel. In the New Testament, we see women very active in the life of the church, in the building, this is now the building of the first century church. In Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, we see women facilitating house churches. Acts 12, we see women facilitating house churches. In Acts chapter 16, Acts 16, and Romans 16, Acts 16 and Romans 16, we have a list of women who were instrumental in building up of the early church. In verse 5 of today's text, we'll see that in a bit, okay? We see women praying and prophesying. That being said, here at Cry Out, some of our most gifted leaders at Cry Out are women. The majority of the stuff that gets done, the majority of the things that get done around here at Cry Out are done by women. Some of the, of the best ideas, ideas here at Cry Out come from women. Some, some of the best Bible study teachers here at Cry Out are women. In fact, if there is a deficit in leadership here at Cry Out, it's not our women. I'm just going to be straight up, friends. It's our men. We need more men who will lead. Men who will take responsibility in their headship, who will lead who will lead in the home, who will lead in the church, who will lead in the community. Got it? I just want to say that. Then he says, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Now, I want you to follow me here. You notice there's a divine chain of command in play here. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man, is her man. And the head of Christ is what? God, God the Father. Now, listen, Christ is equal with God. God, he's equal with God. He's not inferior to God. Why? Because he is God. Jesus is God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, John 8, 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I, what? I am. That's the covenant name of Yahweh, God. But he chose to submit to his father's will. You find that in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, where he humbled himself. Jesus, listen, Jesus is equal to the Father, one with the Father, yet he humbled himself before the Father. 
You see, God the Father is not superior to God the Son. In essence and in nature, they are equal. All that the Father is, the Son also is. Follow me, listen. While there is essential quality in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is also diversity among the persons of the Godhead. Equal, they're equal, but different in function. They had different roles. Jesus, listen now, submitted, got that? Submitted to the Father and came to earth, lived, died, resurrected from the dead. The Father, listen now, you got to get this, the Father was the head of Christ in terms of their function in redemption. Got it? In redemption. So, here's the lesson. Are you ready for the lesson? The lesson is this. Uh, honor God's divine order. Write that down. Honor God's divine, say divine, order. Write that down. Honor God's divine order. So there's a divine order, right? Uh, a perfect pattern for orderliness in family, in church, in society. Now, I got to tell you, listen, you got to get this. If you get it wrong at the top, if you get it wrong at the top, the bottom will fall out. Okay, there'll be chaos, not order. Got it? So point number one is, is headship, right? Orderliness establishes headship. Number two is head coverings. Write that down. Head coverings. If you're still with me, say amen. Head coverings. Verse four. Verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies. Now I want to stop there. Praying is speaking to God on behalf of man, while prophesying is speaking to man on behalf of God. It's giving spontaneous words of encouragement. So every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. I'm going to read that again. I want you to get it. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. Well, the question is, who is the head of man? Well, it's Jesus. Back in verse 3, it says the head of every man is who? Christ. So this begs the question, why is the man Dishonoring Jesus if he prays or prophesies with his head covered. Well, there's several reasons. Actually, there's one of three reasons. Here we go. It could be that it was a sign, that it was a sign as he covered his face, that it was a sign that the man was giving up his responsibility, that he was giving up his responsibility. He was, in fact, saying, I'm not responsible for my wife. I'm not responsible for my family. And what he was doing, he was failing to exercise his leadership under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, listen, men, if you're saved, men, men, if you're saved, say amen, okay? Listen, saved men, you are to assume your responsibility. You are to take authority. And you are to pray to God in submission, in submission to him, saying, I'm receiving from you the authority you've given to me, listen now, to be leading, overseeing my family and my wife. Got it? I am receiving from you the authority you've given to me to be leading, overseeing my family, my wife. Another reason is it could also be because the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, men covered their heads with their toga uh, when they worshiped their pagan gods. And so what perhaps Paul's doing here, he's giving a warning against adopting uh, this practice in Christian worship. 
The third reason it could be also be uh, be because that it was a symbol covering their head was a symbol of their unworthiness to approach God. Now I want you to follow me here, okay? Follow me here. The Jews pray to God with their heads covered with a veil. Supposedly after the pattern of Moses, who began putting a veil over his head when he met with God. But Paul says, interesting, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.13, write that down, 2 Corinthians 3.13, we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. You see, for the Jews, they covered their heads as a symbol of their unworthiness to approach God. But in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 18, Paul tells us that Jesus has taken away the veil, taken away the veil because he died to remove our unworthiness. Therefore, we can now approach God with unveiled faces. Did you get that? When one turns to God, the veil is taken away. So if a believer prays or prophesies with his head still covered, he's bringing dishonor to Jesus because he's making a statement that Jesus didn't pay enough for him to remove his veil. So it's one of those three reasons. Got it? Let's move on. Verse 5, if you're still with me, say, Amen. Verse 5, And every woman who prays or prophesies. Now I want you to notice, Paul, Paul's not questioning whether a woman is able to pray or prophesy in the church. Okay? And every woman who prays or prophesies, this is what he's questioning, with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. And I want to stop there. I'm going to read that again. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, uncovered, dishonors her head. So who's the head of the wife? Right? Who's the head of the wife? Her husband. We saw that in verse 3. Got it? Now listen. In that culture... Women wore head coverings as a public symbol that they were married. It was a symbol of, of being under the authority or the protection of another. It was a way in honoring their husband. Now, now listen, to not cover her head, it's saying in that culture, now you got to get this now, in that culture of that day, okay, it's saying, I'm not under anyone's authority. If she went with an uncovered head, She's saying, I'm not under anyone's authority. I'm not submitted to anyone. Got it? And that's dishonoring her head, her husband. And this would be like a wife taking off her wedding ring today. Also, the woman's hair was seen as an expression of her beauty. It was not to be seen or enjoyed by anyone but the woman's husband. So let's read on. It is just as though her head were shaved. So Paul is saying the woman who doesn't cover her head dishonors her head. Her husband, okay, she might as well be as she was shaven. So follow me here. You see, in that culture, the only women with short hair or shaved heads were immoral women. Temple prostitutes had short hair or a shaved head. Also, in Numbers chapter 5, Numbers 5, we are told that Jewish law said that a woman who was proved guilty of adultery was to have her hair cut off. It was an act of public humiliation. So when a woman appeared in Corinth, 
Okay, in the Corinthian, excuse me, in the Corinthian worship gathering, when she showed up to church without a head covering, with a, with a head uncovered, she not only brought shame to herself, but also to her husband. It was like she was advertising for a man, that she was single. This dishonored her husband. So to avoid all suspicion of being a loosed woman, Christian women in Corinth, in Corinth, were commanded to be, listen, to be covered with a veil, covered with a shawl. And so Paul argued, stay with me now, Paul argued that, look at verse 6, he argued that, verse 6, if a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover, what, her head. Let's move on, verses 7 through 9. A man ought not to cover his head. Got it? Since a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman, woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This timeless principle is in keeping with the story of creation. And this draws from the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And also in Genesis chapter 2. And, and it shows that God, get this now, that God had a specific purpose in the order of creation. You see, by design and position, man was created before the woman. He was given this position. The man was given this position from the beginning. Now, I want to say this. Both men and women are image bearers of God. Got it now? And both reflect the glory of God. Both of them do. They're both image bearers of God and both reflect the glory of God. But since, got to get this, since the woman was made from the man, the side of man, she also is the glory of man. She's the glory of man. You see, man was made in the image and the glory of God, right? He was made first, and the woman came from man. So, so God, right, God made man and saw that it was not good for man to be alone, so he, what, created woman. The woman, listen now, was created from man, for man, to be a helpmate or helpmeet, a completer to the man. Got it? to the man. And what Paul is saying is she glorifies God. She glorifies God and brings glory to the man by submitting to God's order and keeping her head covered in public worship. Got it? Warren Wiersbe said this, Paul tied together both local custom and biblical truth, the one pointing to the other. Get that? To the other. Now let's 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 move on to verse 10. Paul says, For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Now I gotta tell you, most scholars don't know what Paul's saying. I was following Paul until this verse here, and I don't even know what Paul is trying to say here. But but I did some research 
And perhaps Paul, uh, what he means here, he means two things here in verse 10. And, and I think he's referring to reverence in the worship setting, that there should be a reverence in the worship setting. Uh, and so the first thing I think he's referring to here is since the angels are part of creation, they also know their place and show respect, respect, reverence when they worship God, for they cover their faces. And we see that in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 2, Isaiah, Isaiah 6, verse 2, where there God's glory filled the temple and the seraphim, the angels, each with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces, and when two covered their feet, and when two, they were flying. So there was a reverence, okay? And not only that, Paul could also mean that in some special way, the angels share in the public worship of the church. And they, 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 they're, they're looking uh, in the church and observing and watching and learning from the church that the church is worshiping God in reverence. There's a reverence in the worship setting. Ephesians 3.10 Ephesians 3.10 and 1 Peter 1.12. Ephesians 3.10 and 1 Peter 1.12 states that the angels are watching us as we worship. Okay? How crazy is that? How awesome is that? That as we gather together to worship, that in the heavenly realms, the angels are looking down to see how we're worshiping. And that there should be a reverence, a reverence and respect in our worship to the living God. Got it? Verses 11 and 12. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Verse 12. For as woman, as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So Paul here, Paul maintains that just as the woman comes from man in creation, the man comes from woman in birth. Got it? They possess different roles in the order of headship, but by God's design, the expression of their differing roles, Paul's saying, is to be seen mutually compatible and equally edifying to one another. In other words, they're linked together. Got it? Male and female, man and woman are linked together. They need each other. They're dependent on the other. Husband and wife, what he's saying, husband and wife are not independent, but inter- Dependent. Got it? That the woman and the man complement one another, and neither sex is complete without the other. Okay? That there's a difference in function, but no inferiority of the sexes. That's what Paul is saying. Got it? That's what he's saying there. That uh, Man, uh, woman comes from man in creation. The man comes from woman in birth. That every man has a mama. Got it? Then he says the fact that they are to complement one another, man and woman. Difference in function, but not inferiority of the sexes. Okay, no inferiority of the sexes. And then he says this. Look at the end, the end of, of the text. Look at the end of, of verse 12. Yeah, verse 12. He says, but everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. In other words, it's God who puts everything in its right order, right? He set the parameters. God set thy, the, the directives, and they are to be followed. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves, he says. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So 
in context. You got to get this now. In, in, in context, in that cultural setting, we got to remember that. In that cultural setting, the answer is no. No. Okay? No. It's not proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Got it? Number one is head shit. Number two, number two is head coverings. And number three is hairstyles. I'm trying to be creative here. Hairstyles. Write that down. Hairstyles. Hairstyles. And then we'll look at verse 14. And Paul writes, and you got to get this, does not the very nature of things, the very nature of things, in other words, referring to the way things generally are by custom or uh, propriety, okay? He says, teach you that if a man has long hair, okay, that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. Okay, not a sin, not a sin, but a disgrace to him. Not a disgrace to God. You got to get that. Not a disgrace to God, but a disgrace to him. We're talking about this in this cultural setting, okay? Got it? It's not a sin. It's not a disgrace to God, but a disgrace to him to have long hair in that cultural setting. Now, both in both, no, in both Jewish and Greek cultures, short hair was common for men. Therefore, it was um, a dishonor or disgrace for a man to wear long hair because it was, listen now, it was considered feminine or associated with male prostitution. Got it? So in that culture, when you had long hair, it was considered feminine or associated with male prostitution. Now, no matter how long men have worn their hair, women in general have always worn their hair longer, right? Back in the 60s and 70s, most men had longer hair. Okay, it was just, uh, it was the fashion. It was the fashion. And fashions, we know that fashions change, right? In fact, I, my first 22 years of being your pastor, I had long hair. Okay, not because I was trying to be a woman or because I was a male prostitute, okay? I had long hair because I liked it and because I was, I played in a band. Uh, you know, I just enjoyed it. I had long hair. In, in fact, you know what? Uh, some of my own relatives who belong to a, another uh, denomination despised me for having long hair and being a pastor. And they said, you know what? He shouldn't be a pastor. He's got long hair. He's sinning. But they failed. They, see, they took this verse, verse 14 out of context. They took it out of its cultural setting. It, it says in, in this culture, in this culture, that it's, it's a disgrace to man, not disgrace to God. It doesn't say it's a sin. And they, take, they took that verse and they said that I was sinning because I had long hair. Okay, they were misinterpreting verse 14 in its cultural setting. So long hair in itself is not a sin. After all, Paul apparently had long hair. He had long hair uh, for a time in Corinth as part of a vow Okay, the Nazarite vow in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Acts 18, verse 18. Now listen, whatever else these verses teach, they most certainly point out, get this now, that there should be a definite distinction, a definite distinction in the sexes. There should be a noticeable difference, get this now, a noticeable difference between a man and a woman a noticeable difference between a man and a woman, that there's no confusion of the sexes. Did you get that? So there's a lesson. Here's the lesson. Okay, and I want you to hear me. The lesson is this. If you're a man, act like a man. If you're a woman, act like a woman. Got it? God made you a man, act like a man. God made you a woman, 
act like a woman. Now, I want to say this. If you're a man who has long hair and you like long hair, that's okay. Okay, that's okay. But act like a man. Don't act like a woman. And as a woman, if you have short hair, okay, if you, if you like short hair, and I, I know some godly women with short hair, if you have short, that's okay. That's okay. But act like a woman, not like a man. Listen, a man, a man should not try, should not try to look like, walk like, or sound like a woman, nor should a woman try to look like, walk like, or sound like a man. And sadly, sadly, we live in a culture, today in a culture, that men are transitioning into women and women transitioning into men. And I want to tell you, listen now, that is rebellion against God. That is rebellion against God. Listen, there's a, a, a God-designed difference. Listen now, a God-designed difference between males and females. Got it? Males, even nature is, is a witness to that. Even nature is a witness to that. Genesis 5.2, Genesis 5.2 says, He, God, created them male and female. Male and female. Friends, that is to be celebrated. He created a male and female. That is to be affirmed, celebrated and affirmed, not minimized, not ignored, not interchanged. God's word clearly teaches, listen now, complementary roles in the home, in the church, and in society. And even though our culture despises that, and our culture totally despises that, despises God's word, we must stand firm on this. Stand firm on God's word. Can I get an amen? Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Verse 15. But that if, but that if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. So what's Paul saying? Paul, Paul what's he saying? He's simply saying that in, in listen, I got to get this now, in the Corinthian culture, that's key. In the Corinthian culture, at that time, Christian women should keep their hair long as a symbol of their submission to God's order. Got it? Verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So what Paul is saying here, Paul maintained that there's no other pattern given except that which honors God-appointed headship, leadership, authority. Got it? Now, as we wrap this up, I want to give you the timeless principle in this, in this text, in this message. And this is the timeless principle. That when you and I, that when you and I come together for worship as the body of Christ, that we are being honoring to God, honoring to our families, honoring to the angels who are watching and observing us to make sure that we're honoring God and worshiping in, our, in reverence to God. That, that, listen, that we men and women alike ought to live in humility, live modestly, submittedly, and correctly to the glory of God. That's the timeless principle.
If you got it, say you got it. Let's, let's go ahead and let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I, I thank you for giving us the blessing and, and the honor uh, to study your word. Uh, thank you for your, your timeless principles, for your divine design, for your perfect pattern of, of orderliness. We love you, Lord, we praise you, we glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Say amen. Come on, say amen. Now, perhaps there's someone who's listening right now and you've never given, never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you want to do that today. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall, not might, you shall be saved. You will be saved. That's you. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life right now, Lord, to save me, to cleanse me from my sin, and to change my life. I receive you this day. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. From this day forth, I will serve you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you said that prayer, we would love to hear from you. The prayer to follow Jesus, to ask him into your life, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at cryout, that's C-R-Y-Y-O-U-T, contact at cryout.org. We would love to hear from you. So everyone, I hope you enjoyed the message. Again, we learned so much in this text. And I just hope that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful Sunday and just blessings upon you and your family. And I love you, miss you, and I will see you next week. God bless.